0: We are excited to get back to Luke this morning. Anyone here ever rock climb? I have one rock, two rock climbers. I used to rock climb maybe when I was a little younger. Um, and my, my partner, you, some of you know Greg Noss, he was my climbing partner. And we'd go climbing and, and he had just great climbing skills. And he'd go up and down the face a few times and I'd go once fast and then barely do the second. And I can still remember in my ears him saying, get your feet set, get your feet set. And he'd start hitting my feet if he could, or one time he pulled me off the wall. He said, get your feet set. And and one of the things that was counterintuitive to me, and I've taken other younger people climbing since then, is you tend to just try to climb with your arms, just do pull-ups the whole way up. And that's where your strength, the power of rock climbing is in your feet. If you can get a foothold, you can't be ripped off the wall. If you can get a foothold, you can climb up. And so the idea was always get your feet set and then you stand up and standing up is much easier than doing a pull up. Th- this concept of if we get a foothold, then we have a way to, 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 to stay on the wall. We have a way for stability. That is a concept that I want to use as a, a metaphor this morning to think of what sin and what Satan tries to do in our lives. Sin and Satan will try to come in and get some sort of foothold in our lives. And that's different from, oh, I'm just dabbling with sin, or, oh, this happened once. A foothold is something that gives you an ability to stay. It gives you a permanence. It gives you a way to infiltrate. And what Satan would love to do is find ways in our lives and in our church's life to take little bits of sin, but to make them footholds that will hold tight and that will allow further in incursion into our lives, into our church's life. Now we know Jesus is, is on his way to Jerusalem and he's walking and he's teaching his disciples and he's trying to give them what they need to be good disciples. What they need to now carry on and, and make more disciples after he's gone. And so he's taking this time on the way to Jerusalem, on the way to the cross, to teach them and train them what discipleship look like. looks like. Now picture You're walking along with Jesus, maybe a dusty trail, and you stop by by some trees and a little stream, and you get some water, and he just sits down and says, you know what, this is important. This is important. You need to hear this. And he starts to talk about things. And today is one of those passages where he's gathering his disciples around, and he's saying, this is important. We're going to talk about sin a little bit. And we're going to talk about sin and how to keep sin from getting a foothold and getting a, a... a hook into your life. And we're going to talk about that because this is important for you as you make more disciples. This is important for the church as you start it. And if Jesus said something like that to me, I'd listen. And I'd, I'd get a little closer and want to hear what He had to say about how to keep sin out of our lives, how to keep these footholds from taking hold. And this morning, we're just going to look at four verses, four quick verses where Jesus deals with sin and, and, and we're going to, to take each of these points that he says, and each sentence is a, a different point as he's talking about all phases of really community life, church life, and our own lives, and saying, this is something to be on guard about. This is something to take notice of. Now, before we even jump in, and you might have to think, oh, great, I came to a sermon on sin. And, and those, you know, sometimes we can just pound on this issue and pound on this issue. I want to start by reminding us what we sang this morning. Did you catch every song this morning? We sang that our sin is paid for on the cross. That Jesus Christ, a perfect man and perfectly God, came and he sacrificed himself on that cross in payment for your sin, for my sin. And so sin is vanquished. It is finished. And we need to speak that truth into our lives But we live before we're in eternity in this state where we still sin. We still struggle with sin. And we have this propensity to sin. And we know this isn't what God wants us to do. And so how do we fight this? And those songs give us a theological foundation to say it's already been won. Jesus has already paid the price. You are forgiven. And I don't care what anyone in this room has done. We start by saying Jesus can forgive that. If you come to him, he can forgive that there is nothing I can do that puts me so far off that the hand of God's grace can't reach me. And so now that's a great foundation to come to a discussion of sin because now I'm coming to, my sin is paid for, and and out of God's love and grace for me, He has brought me into His family. And so now what can I do to live like His child? What can I do to live as a disciple? Turn with me to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, and we'll be looking at the first four verses today. We've just talked in Luke 16 several passages about money because we know the Pharisees loved money. And that was their particular temptation. That was one of their vices. And so they were chasing money and loving money. But they also, we saw, are are bringing other people away from the truth. They're bringing other people down and causing other people to stumble because they're not pointing them to God. They're pointing them to their rituals and the law and all of these things that they thought would make them righteous when none of all those things were simply a symbol of what would make them righteous, a relationship with God. And so Jesus is talking again about this new covenant, this new relationship with God. So in in Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 4, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there's a black one under the seat around you. We'd love for you to take that and follow along. If you don't have one at home, please take that home as our gift to you. I'm going to read these four verses and then we'll go back and unpack them. And this morning we're going to get five points out of the four verses. So buckle up, we're going to to go through these. Starting at verse 1. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Let's pray before we unpack this. Lord God, I pray that your word would burn in our hearts this morning. That you would convict us. That you would reveal sin. That you would reveal sin a complacency towards sin maybe ways that we are no longer standing strong where we're giving sin footholds into our church into our lives lord use these verses this morning to to dive into our hearts to see where we need to change and see how we need can follow you in your name amen so four quick verses The first point comes out of the first phrase, first two phrases. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. And the first point, if we're to to watch out for the strongholds of sin, is we need to expect temptations and be ready for them. Expect temptations and be ready for them, both personally and in the church family. Now, what's interesting is as you read these four verses, we come from a Western mindset where everything's about me and my walk with God, right? And when I come to worship, it's about me and my worship with God. But they were coming from a corporate mindset, a group mindset, where it's about the group and the community and how can we walk with God. This is why I think in worship it's so important for us to be able to hear each other sing. We were talking about that last night and and to be able to see each other because it's not just an individual relationship. This is a corporate relationship. We stand together as a church family. And and I want to take that and as we look at these four verses, the context here is actually community. Yes, it is my walk with God, but it's our walk with God. And how can we be on the lookout for sin in our church community? And the the first thing that Jesus says is temptations to sin are sure to come. We need to expect it. Expect the temptation. Be ready for them. Both, as I said, in our, our personal lives and in my daily walk with God, but also be ready for sin in our church family. That word for temptations is an interesting word. It's a different word from the word for temptations that's used in the rest of the New Testament. And it, it, it sometimes is translated stumbling block or to cause someone to stumble. Um, one of the, the lexicons used the idea that it was the bait stick of a trap. Does that make sense? The bait stick of a trap? That was a word picture that really helps me understand temptation. I'm hoping to give you that same word picture today. So I, I, I have some props so what am I making? Trap, right? Anyone make one of these when you were younger? I caught all kinds of, of golden mantles and chipmunks with traps like these. And then I, in a proud moment, taught my sons to do the same thing. And you, and you wait till the little animal comes under there, right? And then you pull it and, and you trap the, the animal. Now, we usually do it with buckets or something that would trap them. Um, this just kills them. That's a whole different... Um, whole different thing we have some squirrels in our backyard that maybe that would be good for (laughs) what's missing bait right i am not going to catch now this is a people size one i'm not going to catch many people with this most of you aren't going to come up after the service and say i just really want to crawl under there now our our two and three year old boys yeah they'd totally be there but we need something that is alluring right and so how am i going to catch adults here Some of you are already starting to lean forward, <laughs> and, and you're saying, yeah. So if I was to take this and put it under there, now I've got something. I, I, if, you know, some of you don't like Starbucks. You're like, okay, this illustration's lost on me. But some of you totally get what I'm saying because you didn't have your Starbucks this morning, and you're a little off kilter. And, and so you're like, I'm going to get that afterwards. Please don't. No, this is my son's. And he doesn't know I have it until now. <laughs> that bait is what this word for temptation means. Do you get it? And so it's something that, that Satan will use that will lure you, that will be attractive to you. Now, now, my bait may be different from your bait. Because what I'm weak in might be different from what you're weak in. But Satan is a master a master of understanding that and choosing the bait that will tempt us. And so this word for temptation is this word for a bait stick of a trap. Now keep in mind, what I love about the word picture is it also describes really what sin does to us. And it's a bigger picture that bait is what's alluring and may feel good and may seem good at the time, but what happens when the rope gets pulled? You get crushed. You get trapped. And that is the picture of sin that Jesus is using here. That sin, it looks so alluring at first, but then it traps you and it gives you a stranglehold and it crushes you. Because sin can look so appealing. So appealing. But then when we dive in, when we take the bait, I'm going to move this just in case it falls. I don't want to leave a mess. When we take the bait then sin will, will, will have this foothold in our lives and just fester and grow. And so really, so many of the times, our, our goal here is to say, I'm not even going to take the bait. I'm not even going to get to where I can see the bait. How do we keep from having sin in our lives? Now, this can also refer, the word is also broad enough to refer to any hindrance in our life, any hindrance spiritually in our lives. And so things we may not think of as the bad sins The things that are keeping us from growing in Christ and and keeping us from the assembling together and keeping us from reading God's word, those are all included here. And so Jesus starts by saying, temptations are sure to come. And, And really the first step in understanding this is to expect that there's a problem. If I say I am going to come and break into your house and steal your TV tonight at two in the morning, chances are you'll be ready. Chances are you'll be with a bat or some other, you know, I don't know what, or, or you'll have a little Starbucks that you're luring me away. But um, chances are that you'll be ready. And that's the idea here is Jesus saying, be ready. Don't be surprised. When you accept Christ, it doesn't mean temptations stop. Oh, that that were true. But it doesn't. We are tempted and Satan's going to attack harder. Be ready for those temptations and have a plan for how to deal with them. But again, I encourage us to think through this in community Temptations, struggles are going to come in community. When we get 200 people together, we are going to disagree sometimes. We are going to sin against each other sometimes. So how do we deal with that? Do we let that be a foothold in our church? Or do we deal with it and say, no, that will not take hold here. That will not be a foothold that divides us. So don't be surprised when temptation comes. Rather, be ready for it. Be watching for it. In 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9, a familiar verse, it says, Be sober-minded, so be in your right mind, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And Peter there is saying, your brothers around the world are experiencing these trials. They're experiencing these temptations. Know that it's coming. Don't be surprised. Be watching for it. On our camping trip this last weekend, one of the warnings, there was a bear warning, but one of the warnings was for mountain lions. And so we, we told that to the group up front because that's something you want to know ahead of time rather than after the fact, right? It makes sense, it, This makes sense in life, but to sin it's the same way. And so the group was just on guard. Not not fearful, but we were watching and making sure our trash, trash was taken care of, making sure we weren't alone off in the woods looking like little prey. The, that's the picture that Peter is using here. Satan is like a roaring lion seeking who to devour. And so the question is, are we ready for sin? You will be tempted tomorrow. You will be tempted today. Whatever your bait is, That is going to come up in your life this week. So have you thought about that intentionally and said, okay, how am I going to not let that take hold? How am I going to make sure that's not an issue? We have all kinds of sickness going through. This is being proactive and saying, I'm going to get my vitamins and my sleep and nutrition and try to keep the sickness from coming rather than sitting in bed dying because I have a 99 fever. (laughs) Maybe higher. How can we proactively deal with sin? And so think for a minute, what is your weakness? And and, and you don't have to write it down anywhere. You don't have to tell your neighbor. What is your weakness? What is your bait? What might Satan use this week to get a foothold into your life? Or what might Satan use in our church's life to get a foothold? Maybe someone that we're still angry at. Maybe something that we haven't let go. Maybe a harsh word spoken That we need to go and and confess and repent of. But what can we do to know that temptation is coming and be prepared for it? We need to be ready to counter it. And and three, there's all kinds of ways to counter it, but in your notes I just put three things that we're not going to spend a lot of time on. But really, if we think of how to counter temptation, think of the word, the environment, and accountability. The word, the environment, and accountability. The Word is knowing God's Word, memorizing God's Word, being in God's Word. In, in Psalm 119.11, it says, Thy Word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against you. The Bible says the answer is the Word of God. And so if we're in the Word of God, if, we, if I know I'm going to be tempted, if I know that's going to be a problem this week, okay, have I spent time in the Word? If I know what some of my bait is, have I memorized some verses on that issue? If I if I tend to be angry all the time, then maybe I need to memorize some verses on anger. If, if I tend to, to not be loving, then maybe I need to, to memorize some verses on loving one another. If I hold on to grudges, then maybe I need to memorize some verses on forgiveness. This is expecting temptation to come and dealing with it. The word, the environment. And, and what I mean by environment is, do I put myself in settings where I can sin? If, if I know I'm weak, then don't go to where I'm weak or don't give opportunities for that. If if you're weak in the area of lust and, and, and things that come up on the computer, then only get on your computer when your family's around. Then, then Or put your computer in places or put blockers on your computer. The Don't get into an environment where sin can happen. Now, sin I know sin can always happen and it's in our hearts and in our thoughts. But if we intentionally say, I'm not going to put myself in that situation. You know, one of the things that I've said before is one of the greatest ways to avoid temptation and and avoid sin is to avoid even the situation that would lead to that temptation. And so the word, the environment, accountability is the third one. If If we're to be ready to counter it, then we need to be serious about accountability. Have people in our lives that will call us on our sin and we're going to get to that. Have people in our lives that know us well enough. Now, so many times we put on masks and we can keep ourselves at distance from people and we don't let people get to know the real us. But we've got to be a place where it's okay to be sinners as long as we're helping each other get through that and get past that. We've got to be a place where it's okay to have faults and it's okay to share those things as long as we're moving forward in sanctification. So the first point that Jesus says is expect temptations. They're sure to come. They're inevitable, some translations say. Which is, is sort of a bummer. We might look at it, Ah, I thought Christian life was going to be a little better than that. It is because we have someone to walk through it with us. I think of 1 Corinthians 10.13 where it says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. So So every temptation you deal with is common. It's common to other people. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Amen? But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And God there is saying, temptation's common, but I'm there with you. I will always provide a way through that doesn't involve sin. If we seek him, if we look to him. So expect temptation. Expect it tomorrow. Expect it today. Expect it this week. Expect that there's going to be temptation in our church and there's going to be conflict. There's going to be family. But we need to be ready for that and ready to deal with that. So we get to the second phrase as we look at the end of verse 1 and verse 2. Beware of being a contributor to the sin in anyone else's life. Beware of being a contributor to sin in anyone else's life. See, here could be the logic if if temptation and sin is inevitable, then hey, I'm off the hook. I can be part of that in anyone's life. And Jesus said, no, no, no. It's inevitable. Temptation is coming. But don't do this to anyone else. Don't be part of this. Watch out. Beware. Be on guard. The verses there starting at the end of 1. But woe to the one through whom they come. And that word for woe is a strong word. It is a word of warning. It is a word... Of, of intense hardship and distress. And so Jesus is saying, you are in for intense hardship and distress. Woe to the one through whom those temptations come. It would be better for him if a millstone stone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. And Jesus used a comparison. I think I have some pictures of a millstone. I don't know if they're later in the slides. This is a millstone this one would have been milling olives. And you, you press the olives and olive oil comes out. And you see the hole through the stone? A, a large beam or a stick would be put through there. And either a person or an oxen would then walk this around. And it's out far enough where you get enough leverage and you can move this. Because that stone is a couple hundred pounds. And so this is how they, they they squeeze the oil out of olives. And Jesus isn't saying if you cause someone to sin or if you cause someone to stumble that this will happen to you, he's saying this is, this is better for you. What he's going to do to us, so the consequences are going to be worse than if I took that stone, tied it to myself, and went and jumped in the sea, which meant sure drowning. And so Jesus is saying it's better for you to drown yourself than for you to endure the consequences if you cause others to stumble, if you cause others to walk away from God. This is a serious statement. And this is where he's talking about body life and community. And he's saying, beware, be on guard, that you're not causing someone else to, to stumble, that you're not causing someone else to sin. And, and again, this word for temptation and this, this word for sin here, the, the context is that it's broader than just the big sins we think of. But am I putting any hindrances to anyone's spiritual life? Am I doing anything that will hinder someone from walking with God or walking close to Him? And and so this is a broader term than we think of sometimes. So yes, this includes the sins we're willing to do with people. And I've seen that happen. Hey, do you want to go do this? Or do you want to go to this? And, And we know it's wrong and we bring other people into it because sin is always, you know, so much better for to convince ourselves it's okay if we bring others into it and we have other partners. That's what he's talking about here for sure. Because we're, we're now bringing temptation. But it's also things that, that might cause someone to, actions that might cause someone to stumble that maybe for us are okay. This is the same word that we see in Romans and 1 Corinthians about I'm not going to eat meat if that causes people to stumble. I'm just, not that meat's wrong for me, but if it causes someone else to stumble, then I'm not going to do it. And this is a mindset that says you are more important than me, others are more important than me. And so I will pay attention to that. I will care about you more than my own rights, more than my own wants, because this can make a difference. I, I can remember going to see a movie with Susie before we had kids when we were youth pastors, well, youth pastor, and um, we went and saw a movie, and we're, we're about a third of the way through the movie, and, and we hadn't read any reviews or anything on it. It was just raunchy. And we ended up getting up and walking out, because we're like, this is not what a believer should be sitting through. And that Sunday in Sunday school, one of the youth says, you know, I saw you in that movie. We were in there. And at that point, I realized if we hadn't have gotten up and walked out, then we would have been a stumbling block to that particular youth. Now, they stayed through the whole movie. And so we had a marvelous discussion that Sunday about why we walked out. Because they were like, why would you walk out? Now, that's a whole different discussion than didn't you think that movie was great? One allowed us to teach something and and bring someone to truth. The other would have caused somebody to stumble. And it would have been better for us to be drowned by that giant millstone than for that to happen. That's how seriously Jesus takes our relationships with each other. That is huge, guys, that we are responsible for each other. This is why God didn't really like Cain's response of, am I my brother's keeper? Because the answer was, well, yeah, actually. Yeah. And the fact that he had killed him. Part of that. <laughs> and so what do we do that draws people away? It might be things that we don't even think of. Maybe we we get into soccer season and we're bringing other people away from Sunday morning church and the gathering of the saints. Which we know violates Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. And it tears them down spiritually. And so, inadvertently, we've caused somebody to stumble or we've put a hindrance into their spiritual walk. Maybe as we're talking about church or talking about, about things at church, maybe we complain a lot. Or maybe we gossip a lot. Or, man, I wish Pastor Ron would do this. Or, I wish he would have crushed the Starbucks bottle instead of taking it away. That would have been a much better illustration. Uh, I don't know what it is, but we complain about things. That's humorous, but we complain about people at church all the time, don't we? Oh man, that person just gets on my nerves, and we find someone else that we can talk to about it. What you're doing is causing them to sin. Straight up. You're causing them to stumble. And it would be better if a millstone were hung around our neck and we jumped into the sea. This is serious. And so we need to think and be aware of how do we talk? How do we talk about church family? Now, I'm not saying people aren't going to annoy you. Yeah, they are. But we deal with that. We go to them, and if they've sinned against us, we confront it, and we're going to get there in the text. There is no excuse for drawing someone away from God because we all have that responsibility. Now, now at the end of verse 2, you see that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. And we might think, okay, I'm off the hook here. As long as I don't cause the little ones over there to sin, I can cause you guys to sin. And I'm okay. The, the wording here, in the context, if you notice, there's no, there's no wording about any children in this context. Jesus is just talking to his disciples. Little ones or young ones is often how he referred to his disciples and how he referred to these young followers of Christ. And so it doesn't, don't think age here. But think we're all little ones in God's family. And so, if I cause someone else, especially someone weaker or younger than the faith than me, then that is a recipe for disaster. And so, these are instructions for how to live as church family. And family relationships, they don't leave room for sin, they don't help others sin, they don't make it an environment where sin is okay so we need to be aware of our actions the question that i was challenged with as i was studying this is do i take this seriously do i really take this as seriously as the millstone illustration would have me take it i was reading a a story by pastor kent hughes and he gets together with other pastors and prays and he says i've prayed with my pastoral colleagues lord if one of us were headed for adultery take him home now And he said all all of his colleagues nodded their verbal assent. Think about that. I, I love that story because he's so serious about not doing something that would cause others to stumble that he'd rather God take him home than to do that. Are you your brother's keeper? Yeah. Are you your sister's keeper? Yeah. And so what we say, how we talk matters, what we do matters. Not just the, the explicit leading people into sin, but the, the conversations that maybe tear down God's pride, that maybe keep people from being in the word. And so we're to expect that, that temptations are coming. We're to beware the, of being a temptation in other people's lives, and th- then Jesus goes on to really talk about, OK, what happens when we do hurt each other? What happens when there is sin? when there's an offense against each other. And, and usually when there's an offense, when someone has done something that hurt, hurts us, the worldly pattern, and we've talked about this before, is we start by sort of nursing the grudge, right? mulling it over in our hearts, thinking about it and just chewing on it. And that grudge becomes bigger and bigger in our lives. And then we start to talk to others about it because we want to feel vindicated. We want to feel right. Hey, Joey, did, did you hear what Pastor Andrew did to me? You know, he's not here this morning, so it's probably okay to talk about him. I'm not really behind his back because he's over there. But, um, and, and then I, I'm, I'm getting support for my side. He hasn't done anything to me. He's, and, he, and he's doing great. He's getting better. Please keep praying for him. But, um, and he'll, he'll be listening to this. Um, but do you see what I'm doing? I'm starting now to get people on my side. And, and I'm start, this is the world's way, and this happens in a conflict. And then we just find ourselves getting angrier and more bitter because now I have people around me that are saying, you're right. You should be angry. What they did to you was wrong. You should just, ah. And so then it gets more and more and it spirals into criticism of that person and a critical spirit. Critical spirits actually always spread to other people, by the way. It's never just limited to one person. And then we eventually break off that relationship. Because we just can't handle it anymore. And we're just we're we're just willing to tolerate people, and maybe one one person sits on the side of the word and one person sits on the side of the light. And that's not God's way. It's not God's way. And so Jesus deals with this. He knows He knows this happens in a family. But what do we do when we fall? And this is this is reminiscent, and actually it's parallel with Matthew 18, where Jesus talks about what to do when, when you fall. But the first thing he says in verse three is go and lay down the hammer on your brother. No, actually, what's the first thing he says? Pay attention to yourself. Pay attention to yourself. And the first point here is constantly watch for and deal with sin in your own life before confronting others. This is the log and the speck that we've already talked about, right? Where Jesus says, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye when you have a log in your own eye, you hypocrite, he says, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to be able to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Remember that? And, and Jesus is just repeating this. He, he is a master teacher that keeps repeating in different ways the same principles over and over because we just don't get it. And so the first thing he says here is pay attention to yourself. Look at your own... If you're at odds with somebody or if somebody has offended you, if you see someone as sin." Your first thing is, oh, am I falling in the same way? Do I need to look and see what's going on in my life? See, sometimes we get so caught up into correcting other people and helping them do what's right and and showing them the way that we forget that we're still responsible for our own sin. I'm still responsible for my own actions. What you do is never an excuse for my sin. Never. I can never say, well, because you did this, I chose to sin. It's your fault. That now uh, That's what a child does. That's what we do when we're trying to get rid of personal responsibility. And, and I, I've heard all my children say this when they were younger. We're like, no, no, you chose to do that. You did that. And so while in point number two, we, God will hold us responsible if we contribute to someone else's sin... That's not an excuse to get us off the hook for our own sin. He also holds each person responsible for their own sin. And so we can't point the finger at other people. We always start by saying, what's the sin in my life? Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my way. See if there be any wicked way in me. The, the wording here, pay attention to yourselves. The, the wording is a present imperative, which means to constantly watch for sin, to be on guard. Very similar to, to the first phrase. But here, before we confront, we've got to look at self. And then we get to the next phrase in verse 3. If your brother sins, and that word for brother is brother or sister, we're not just picking on the guys here. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And this is one of the verses that is often ignored or oft over-exercised. I've seen the two extremes on this verse, along with Matthew 18, both of which are incredibly damaging to the body and cause sin to have strongholds in the body. And, and so, so let's think this through. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And, and Jesus is going beyond point number two, where he says don't cause someone to sin or don't contribute to sin. Now he's saying go beyond that and don't let them sin. Don't let them be in sin. Keep them from sin and so don't just not cause someone to sin but keep people from sin. Now when we hear rebuke and confront and words like that it's like ah oh, no 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 no. No no one's going to lunch with anyone today apparently you know because we don't want to hear any of that. But but here's the, the foundation of this are we all committed to righteousness? Are we committed to following God? And if we share a commitment to pursue righteousness then the actions that are godly out of that to confront and to encourage and to exhort each other, those are a shared purpose and should be welcomed. I know no one wants to hear rebuke. No one wants to hear correction. But if our shared purpose is that commitment to pursue righteousness, then we will accept it for what it is. And so this shared commitment is something that should be embraced. But so often we don't because we're afraid to get involved in each other's lives. So how do we do this well? And and we start with what the word rebuke means. It means to warn or reprove in order to prevent or end an action. To warn or reprove in order to end or prevent an action. And and that in order part of it is vital because whenever we rebuke someone, whenever we come to someone and, and share a truth the attitude always has to be for for a change. I'm not bringing a hammer to punish you. I'm not bringing a hammer to someone to to just feel good that I'm righteous and they're not. It's always to end an action or to change. The focus has to be on that goal. And so the, the wording here is if your brother sins, if you see someone in habitual sin or in unrepentant sin, then we're to go to him and talk to him and and confront that. The the wording for point number four there is confront your brother or sister in Christ who is in unrepentant sin. And and in verse four, Jesus expands it even more. And if he sins against you, he's talking about forgiveness at that point. But this idea is, yes, we expect sin to happen, but how do we deal with it? In Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, we have really an expanded description of what this rebuke looks like and and really to do this well we start there and we think through the steps and in matthew 18 jesus outlines how to do this well and he says first you start by going to the person privately if your brother sins against you or has an offense against you go to him privately and talk to him and try to work it out you keep your circle to just that and then it says if he doesn't respond then you bring two or three witnesses you'd bring another uh, two or three other christians godly believers all of which have the goal of res- repentance and restoration, and you bring them together and you say, we've seen this in your life. We're concerned about this. This, is, this shows us that you're not following God, and we love you and we want you to follow God. We want you to, to be close to him. We want you to be part of the church family in a healthy way. And then in Matthew 18, Jesus says, if they don't respond to that, if they're still unrepentant and say, no, I don't think it's wrong or no, I'm not going to change and I've had people sell me that, then you take it to the church. And and that's where we have an elder board set up. The elders then meet and they meet with the person and then eventually, if they're still unrepentant, we bring it to the whole church and let the whole church know. And this sounds harsh and this sounds devastating, but this is designed, number one, these are the words of Jesus, so we have to deal with that. This is what Jesus commanded to do. And this is actually the most loving thing we can do to someone that is in unrepentant sin. Is it more loving to let them continue off the cliff they're going off of? Is that loving? It's comfortable. It's convenient. But it's not loving. Because the goal is to put barriers before they get off that cliff to turn them around to walking with God. And so Jesus is talking about footholds. He says, yes, expect sin and make sure you're not contributing to anyone else's sin. But now let's make sure that we're helping each other not sin. And we're confronting that sin. Something that, that we want to think through. And, and this is why Jesus pairs confronting or rebuking with forgiveness. The right attitude matters. When we go through this process, attitude is everything. Because this isn't the situation where I'm coming with self-righteous. Well, you know, I, I've got this down and I don't ever sin. But hey, I, I'm going to let you. I'm gonna, you're my project. I'm going to bring you along. And we're going to get sin out of your life. You're done at that point. That is a sinful, arrogant, self-righteous attitude. But we're coming humbly as a fellow sinner. As a fellow walker with Christ. As a fellow disciple. And we're saying, let me help you with this. Let me come alongside. You know, if someone says, I, I always get angry at my wife and I yell at my wife and I'm struggling with that and I'm causing problems in my home. We could just hammer them, say, that's sin, that's wrong, you should stop it. I never do that. Never get upset my kids ever. Or we could say, yeah, you know what? There, there are times that that's a temptation for me too. Can I walk with you through this? Let's look at what Scripture teaches about this. Let's meet, let's talk about this, let's find ways to love our wives and to live with them in an understanding way, as First Peter says. That's a different tone, it's a different attitude. And attitude is everything when we come and confront. The context is restoration and forgiveness. Don't lose that. Don't lose that. The idea we know from, from Ephesians is to speak the truth, but in love. And so many times we, we, we stray on both sides of that. We just want to speak the truth and we just want to bring the hammer and, and we just want to, to let someone know how awful what they're doing is. But if that's not done in love, that won't be received. That, that will just push people away. Or we go on the other side and say, I love them so much that I, I, I can't ever talk to them about the sin of their life. That would be mean. They might cry they might but true love is going to speak the truth and so paul in ephesians says speak the truth in love one author had, had these simple words the, 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 this conversation is to be serious frank and gentle like there it is serious frank and gentle and that's what we should be after and and, and Let me get on a little soapbox here for a minute. So often I hear us talk about boldness and we pray for boldness and we want to be bold with people because our our society values that. We see that as a type A strength in a person. And should we be bold for the gospel? Yes. Paul says, I pray for boldness to share the gospel. But I'm concerned because I think that word means so many different things in English and in our culture that I don't pray for boldness when I'm dealing with interpersonal relationship. I want to pray for loving truthfulness. See the difference? Boldness often equates to harshness in our society. And yes, we should be bold. And if by boldness I mean I need the courage to go talk to them, then by all means pray for boldness. But we need to be careful of an attitude of harshness. What we're seeking is frank, loving truth. And we tend to be both sides of this, like I said. We tend to say nothing because we don't have the courage to talk to someone and we don't love them enough to talk to them. Or we tend to just lay down the hammer and and not walk through it with them and they're left wounded and bleeding and we're like, see ya, I'm on with life. Neither of those are godly. Both of those are sin. Loving truthfulness is what we're after. Another note about attitude. If you go to somebody, if you're going to someone to confront them and you're looking forward to that conversation, you're not in the right frame of mind to have that conversation. Now you're doing it out of anger or spite or self-righteousness. These are the conversations that we don't look forward to, but we do because we love somebody. And what we're seeking is repentance. He says that in the end of verse 3. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents... Forgive him. And what does that repentance look like? That repentance is a full, honest admission, I was wrong. I, I, I You can tell when someone repents, right? Because they just meant, yes, I was wrong, and they're broken over it, and it's a full admission that they were wrong. Ways that you know someone hasn't repented is when they add a but to it, right? Repentance has no buts. Repentance says, I was wrong, I shouldn't have done it, please forgive me. An unrepentant spirit says, I shouldn't have done that. But if you hadn't have done X, I wouldn't have done it. Is that repentance? No. That's pointing the finger. It's placing the blame. That's saying, I'm not really responsible for my actions. And We have to be careful of doing that. We don't like to repent. And so we're looking for reasons why we sinned. The reason is we're sinners and we chose to sin. And we need to own that. And so repentance is specific. I was wrong. I I, I shouldn't have done this. Please forgive me. With no buts. A couple of other words about attitude. As we think about confronting sin and pointing out sin in someone else's life, this isn't, and the danger here is we don't want to turn this into a watchdog hunt for every little thing others do wrong. So we don't want to have a line of 10 people out there on Boira watching you leave the church today critiquing your driving. What this is talking about is unrepentant sin. This is sin that is ongoing, that the person has been resistant to dealing with in their life. You may see me me speak to my children harshly at some point. I, I pray that I don't, but you might see that because sometimes kids are frustrating. Sometimes life is overwhelming and I choose to sin. And, and what you do when you see someone do that, you don't just run up to them and say, Aha! I got you! Here, come, let's talk. I need to rebuke you. Because that's what Pastor Ron said to do. No, no, we want to see, is there a pattern of their life in that? Give room for the Holy Spirit. It is so much better if you see someone sin for the Holy Spirit to convict them and for them to be broken through the work of the Holy Spirit That's the better starting point than an intervention. And so we're talking about something that's an ongoing sin, an unrepentant sin, a sin that has trapped someone under the the bait, under the trap, and we're hoping to help them get out of that. The other question to ask when we go to rebuke someone is, am I the right person to deal with this? Am I the right person to deal with this? In this this passage in verse 4, it talks about if he sins against you. And so there's there's a, an involvement there. I'm part of the situation. In Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, there are times that maybe you know of sin in someone's life because you've heard a lot of gossip. And maybe we need to look at ourselves. No, okay. Um, maybe we know of sin in someone else's life and we're not the right person to deal with it because we're not in relationship with them. Now, that doesn't excuse us as as a church community of dealing with that sin, but maybe we we then seek out or, or find someone else that is closer, that is in that relationship or in that situation, and we step away from it and not talk about it and not deal with it, but we let the right person deal with it. It's not an excuse just to let sin go unchecked, though, because, hey, nobody's close to that person, so they can just go on sinning. But we need to think, am I the right person for this? If I had to sum up this principle, we cannot be indifferent to sin if we love each other. Make sense? We cannot be indifferent to sin if we love each other. This is the whole problem with permissive parenting. Parenting out of love that says, I'm not going to discipline because I don't want to harm my child. I don't want to you know, bruise their little spirits. And that permissive parenting isn't loving. It's not doing them any good. In fact, we're causing them all kinds of trouble later on in life. The same is true of our relationships with each other. We cannot be indifferent to sin if we love each other. And finally, the last point, in the end of verse 3, into verse 4, be quick to forgive, forgive, forgive. Be quick to forgive, forgive, forgive. And yes, I did do that three times on purpose. It's not just a cut and paste, copy and paste thing. Jesus says, if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. And so Jesus said, be careful not to cause others to sin. If you see someone in sin, confront them. Or if they sin against you, deal with it, but don't keep a grudge keeping a grudge, not forgiving someone is just as much a sin as what that person did to you. Does that make sense? If, Again, if one of you offends me or something and and we deal with it, or maybe I'm too scared to deal with it, we don't talk about it, and I just harbor an unforgiving spirit towards you, and I hold you at arm's length, and I say, nope, 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 I remember what they did to me, I'm not going to do this, that is a foothold for sin in our church. And that is sin. Again, we all have to own our own junk. We have to own our own sin. And so Jesus says, if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in the day, and that, that, that don't start a tally mark of each day of how many people sin against you. This isn't saying seven and we're done. Some of you are already at seven with me and so we're going to have a fun rest of the day. No, no. The, word, the the number seven represented perfection or completion. and And what Jesus is saying is, it doesn't matter how many times. Forgiveness is generous and keeps forgiving and keeps forgiving and keeps forgiving. And so he says, if someone sins against you seven times a day and turns to you seven times and says, I repent. Now, now let me ask you a question. If someone offends you in the same way seven times in a day and says, oh, I'm sorry. What are you thinking by the seventh time? I couldn't hear anyone, but I'm going to assume you may, that they don't mean it, Right? They're not genuine. What does Jesus say? If they come to you seven times and say they repent, you might want to think about forgiving them. Is that what he says? And he uses stronger words, doesn't he? You must forgive them. And there's a reason Jesus commands forgiveness instead of says, when you feel like it. Or when you think they've suffered enough. Or or when x you can put any no he says you must forgive it's a command like in ephesians four thirty-two: be kind to one another tenderhearted forgiving one another as god in christ forgave you the matthew 18 passage if you look at the the section right after rebuking it also is all about forgiveness and what god has done for us and so we forgive others but it's hard so jesus says it's a command i know it's hard it's a struggle Why do we struggle to forgive? Have you thought about that before? Why is it so hard to forgive? And and I think that's such a loaded thing because we we don't forgive because we don't want to let someone off the hook. The assumption of that statement is I'm the one that needs to keep them on the hook. Or we we don't want to forgive because we don't want to okay their behavior. But that's not my responsibility. That's God's. Sometimes we don't want to forgive because we're, we're prideful. And we were hurt, and how dare they? And so, I can't, they, they can't just get off easily for that. Sometimes we don't forgive because of self protection, and I think this is the biggest one. We don't forgive because of self protection. What if they hurt me again? Jesus said seven times in a day. And so, self protection, again, is an insidious foothold of sin. Of self centeredness, that I need to protect myself. And I, self protection as root says, I am more valuable than that person. And Jesus says, if they repent, you forgive. Over and over and over. You know, in, in various groups, I've done long talks on forgiveness. And, and I would love to get into that here, but we have five minutes. What is forgiveness? And the word here, the Greek word is aphiami. And it means to let go, to leave behind, to release. To let go, to leave behind, and to release. And it's saying, I no longer will hold you accountable or hold you responsible for this. I will no longer hold the debt for this action. I will transfer that to God. I will release that to God. Because I'm not the one that that should be making you pay for your sins anyway. And so forgiveness is saying, I am going to let go of this. I'm going to transfer this debt to God and I'm going to be free of it and I'm going to treat you as a brother or sister in Christ. I'm going to leave it behind. That's what forgiveness means. It's the first step toward reconciliation. Which is why Jesus pounds on this here. And he says, if if they sin against you, if they repent, forgive and forgive And forgive. See, in Judaism, it was considered virtuous and honorable to forgive someone three times. After that, you didn't have to anymore. Sort of cool, right? Then you could hold grudges and get angry and talk about people. And Jesus here is directly countering Judaism. Saying, no, 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 no. Forgive, forgive, forgive. Forgiveness is to be done fully, freely, and forever. Forever. Those are three three words that just help me think through forgiveness. Fully, I'm to let it go completely. Freely, with no strings attached. And forever, I'm not going to bring it up again. That's true forgiveness. Now, I know this is hard. We're a family. We're rubbing shoulders. We're worshiping together. We're serving together. And so many people of you are serving. So many of you. We have opinions. We have decisions. We just came back from a college or a young adult camping trip this last weekend where we're living in tents next to each other for four days, four days of of just in, in without your personal space and proximity, four days without showers, body odor, and so these things just make it harder to be together, right? But we forgive and we have to find ways as a family to to come together and to let go of these things because this is a foothold satan will use in our lives and in our church the battle of sin against sin is part of being church family joseph bernardin a chicago cardinal said this about about sin in the church and and just getting along in the church in every family there are times when there is hurt anger or alienation but we cannot run away from our family we have only one family so too the church is our spiritual family Once we become a member, we may be hurt or become alienated, but it is still our family. Since there is no other, we must work at reconciliation. Wise words. Wise words. doesn't matter if we grate on each other. doesn't matter if we sin against each other. We're to deal with it and to forgive and to be a family. Ephesians 4.27 says, And give no opportunity to the devil. Give no opportunity to the devil. That's what we want to be as a church. So Jesus in four verses just gives five quick hits of how to keep sin from having a stronghold. He says, expect it and be ready for it. Then he says, be careful that you're not causing someone else to sin or stumble. And then when there are things that happen, look at yourself first. And am I living for God and deal with sin in your own life? Then be willing to have that tough conversation, truth in love, and then be willing to forgive and restore. Great words and four quick verses that we can apply every day. Let's just go to God in prayer and ask that this be, be who we are as a church. Lord God, we know that we struggle with sin and we struggle with temptation this side of eternity. We are looking forward to the day when we are with you in the new heaven and the new earth when sin is no more. But Lord, help us now to be able to deal with sin. Help us to be ready even this week, be thinking of what kind of baits Satan wants to use and be combating those. Lord, help us to be aware of how, how our actions affect those around us. Help us to be willing to have those tough conversations where we are helping each other pursue righteousness. Lord, help us to be loving in those conversations. And Lord, most importantly of all, give us forgiving spirits that are willing to let go and restore that are willing to say, yes, we're all broken, we're all sinners, but we come to Christ and we're all forgiven. You have forgiven us so much, God. We praise You and thank You. In Your name, Amen.